turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. For those of you who haven't been with us, we've been in a four-part series walking through the Gospel of Mark, picking up on a couple different themes on some main emphasis that, God, that Mark makes for us in his Gospel. And this is the end of our series, titled, Beholding the Glory of Christ. If you were here with us this, the first week or were not, the first week we talked about how Mark shows us that Jesus had all authority. He shows us that Jesus had authority over the demons, that they bowed the knee to his word. He showed us that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, which only God could do. If you were in your home group, you looked at the fact that Jesus had all authority over the creation. The next week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is, was, Yahweh in the flesh. He was the compassionate God of Exodus that led Israel through the wilderness. And he has compassion on his children here even now. And then last week we looked at Jesus' third prediction of his death and resurrection and what the death of Jesus accomplished. This morning, our final story invites us to sit at the foot of the cross to behold the glory of Christ. You see, Mark has been carefully moving his readers through the gospel to get us to this point with eyes to see. These verses are the climax of Mark's gospel. Every story purposefully placed to lead the reader to have to decide whether Mark's declaration in Mark 1.1 is true. If you remember that, he says, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we read this, we're going to be left to wonder, was Jesus of Nazareth really the Christ? Was he really the Son of God? Did he really come to do what he said he came to do? Now, up until these final pages, reading this gospel, we might find it easy to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's exercised amazing authority and power. Even in the trials up to our passage about the cross, there's still a chance that Jesus is really going to show his power and his glory. There's still a chance that he might exercise his control over creation, shake the heavens, and break the chains that bind him. There's still a chance he'll show everyone that he is God. And his power and glory will be on display. But what I want you to see this morning is that Mark is wanting us to see glory and power. Mark's purpose, I believe, is for us to look at this moment in history when Jesus was on the cross to behold the glory of Christ. So we're going to dive right in to the scriptures, Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. Read them together with me. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in for the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. You can imagine the shock from the audience if this was a play. The Son of God is mocked and crucified. Where's the power? Where's the glory? What's even more interesting about Mark's gospel is that he spends very little time on the resurrection. In fact, Mark's gospel actually ends at chapter 16, verse 8. Verses 9 through 20, many scholars believe, were added at a later date. And we believe this for two reasons. The first is that the oldest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, of Mark's gospel, don't have those verses in them. The other reason is that verses 9 through 20 have different Greek. And so they're probably not written by Mark. If you were reading it in the Greek language, you would see a noticeable shift in the influx, in the verbiage that he uses. So what probably happened is that someone in the church decided to add them later to smooth out the ending. Because... Verse 8 ends rather abruptly. Let me just read it for you. It says, 
And they went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I believe Mark has a beautiful reason for ending his gospel this way. And I think it's to show that at the cross, the power and the glory of Christ are on full display. This is not meant to take away from the glory of the resurrection as we talked about last week. It is the glorious validation that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient. But at the cross, church, glory shines brightly. John Owen in his book, The Glory of Christ, says that as we see the wisdom and love of God at work in redemption and salvation, he says, the beams of their glory shine to us with unspeakable refreshment and joy. You see, redemption is where the glory of Christ shines brightly, and redemption is accomplished on the cross. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. So what I want to do is look at the cross this morning to see the glory of Christ. And I want to do this by imagining them as four acts in a play. Act one is in verses 21 through 25. And here we see that glory shines through perceived weakness. Look at verses 21 through 25. The opening scene is one of weakness. In Mark 15, 16 through 20, we read that Jesus had been scourged, spit upon, mocked. And then as John 19, 17 tells us, Jesus went out originally bearing his own cross. But in verse 21, we see that the cross becomes too heavy to bear. And the soldiers and the centurion compelled a passerby to pick it up. Just think about this scene for a moment. The Son of God is too weak to carry the cross. He falls to the ground. And someone who is simply coming from the country is ordered to pick up and carry the bloody cross for him. Now look at the way Mark describes this man in verse 21. He identifies him by the city he is from, Simon of Cyrene, and his family, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You see, Mark is purposeful to make sure that the readers know exactly who this man is. And when details like this are given in the Gospels, it typically means that they knew Simon and his sons. And it would seem from the biblical record that Simon and his sons probably became believers because Alexander appears to be mentioned in Acts 19 and Rufus in Romans 16. Do you see, this is a beautiful display of the glory of Christ. In a moment where Christ is too weak to carry his own cross, 
we see God bring a man as close to the reality of the cross of Christ as you can come. While Jesus has the weight of my sin upon his shoulders, Simon feels the weight of the cross upon his. Can you imagine what it feels like to look at Jesus in that moment? Can you imagine the story he tells to his children after that day is over? Don't miss this moment. The glory of Christ is shining. And then in verse 22, we see that the scene builds. As the soldiers and the centurion bring Christ to the place of his crucifixion called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is a familiar and public place. It's right outside the city, next to a public road, so that everyone who walks by will see the men hanging on the cross. Now notice what happens in verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. See, this mixture was offered as a kind of anesthesia to dull the senses and to numb the pain. But what does Jesus do? He refuses to take it. In a moment when we perceive him as being weak, Jesus Christ is strong enough to know that he needs to be fully aware while he's on the cross of what's taking place. Do you see the glory of Christ? While we perceive him to be weak, he's actually strong. Now, Act 1 concludes in an interesting way to me. Look at verses 24 through 25. The soldiers strip Christ of his clothing and divide his garments among them. John 19, 23 actually shows us that they cast lots for his tunic. There's a game going on while Jesus is suffering on the cross. But did you notice how little time Mark spends on the details of the crucifixion? He mentions it in these 18 verses, only two times in these two verses, and he was crucified. Now, perhaps this is because Mark's original audience was all too familiar with the crucifixion, but I think it's purposeful because Mark doesn't want us to be distracted by the details of the gruesome crucifixion. Because that's not the main thing that's taking place at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is many men were crucified before Jesus Christ. And many men were crucified after Jesus Christ. But no one experiences the same experience that Jesus did on the cross. And no one has their glory shine through perceived weakness. And this moves us into what I'm going to call Act 2, where we see glory shines through restrained power. Look now at verses 26 through 32. Act 2 is filled with irony, irony that's displayed through mockery. And it opens with the inscription of the charge against Jesus in verse 26 the king of the Jews. You see, Pilate is mocking Jesus and the Jews with this inscription. 
If we were to read John 19, we would see that Jesus told Pilate that he had no authority over him had it not been given to him from heaven. And we see in Mark 15, 11, that the Jews cried out for Pilate to release an insurrectionist, Barabbas, instead of Jesus. They wanted to overthrow Roman power. So what Pilate is doing in this moment is he's saying, look, even their so-called king is subject to the Romans. And John 19, 20 shows that this, isn't, this inscription was actually written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The irony is that this inscription shines the glory of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. And this inscription written in multiple language is going to be plastered above his cross for everyone to see and read. It's the global proclamation in this moment that Jesus is the king. Now continue with me in verse 27. Here we see that Jesus has company on the cross. Two criminals, one to his right and one to his left. People who deserved the cross according to Roman law. They're mentioned one more time in verse 32 when they are shown reviling Christ. You see this moment right here, a brief sentence that he was between two criminals shows the beauty of substitutionary atonement. Christ was substituted in the place of man. You see, that cross was reserved for someone else that day. Pilate didn't all of a sudden decide to hold a crucifixion. There was one scheduled. And there was a man that was supposed to be between those two men on the cross. His name was Barabbas. He was probably a murderer. Yet, in Christ's restrained power, we see him in the place of Barabbas. We see him in the place of a sinner taking punishment in his place. Verses 29 through 32 then reveal the brightest glory shining through restrained power. Notice what is taking place here. People are passing by, sarcastically mocking Jesus. Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. You see, the irony is what they never believed Jesus could do, he could have done. Jesus prophesied about the temple being destroyed and him rebuilding it in three days. Ultimately, he was prophesying about his death. He was the temple of God. But let's not be mistaken. Jesus had the power to destroy the temple and rebuild it in an instant. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.3 says that all things were made through him. And then if you remember the beginning in Genesis, God said, let there be light. And there was light. He created the entire world with a spoken word. 
And he holds the world together even while he's on the cross. He has the power to come down if he wanted to. But then in verses 31 through 32, the chief priests and the scribes join in the mocking. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ come down from the cross that we may see and believe. You see, they're questioning the power of Jesus. They claim that if he would just show them his power, then they would see and believe. They ask for another sign. Was the feeding of the 5,000 not good enough? Was the healing of a blind man not good enough? They've seen many things. Leprosy healed by the touch of Jesus. It's crazy to ask for something else. But don't we often do the same thing? Don't we often want a display of power in order to believe? We want God to shake the heavens or to heal miraculously or to give us some kind of sign. Then we will believe. But this is what we need to see right here the power and the glory of Christ are on display for us. You see, it reveals more power and glory that he would suffer on behalf of his people than it would have for him to come down from the cross right in that moment. It is precisely by not coming down from the cross that Jesus Christ saves others. He saves you by restraining his power. He saves me by staying on the cross. He could have come down. Yet it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Salvation, church, in this moment on the cross, salvation has not been accomplished. The crucifixion is not the atoning work by itself. There is something else taking place on the cross that accomplishes salvation, and Mark is getting there. Right now, we see glory shining through restrained power. He did not come down because he had something left to do. And that moves us on to Act 3. Glory shines through utter darkness. This moment in history is simultaneously the darkest moment in history and the brightest. It is the saddest moment and the happiest. We need to see what happens here. Picture the scene in verses 33 through 38. Jesus has been enduring physical pain on the cross. People are mocking him as they pass by. The soldiers are playing a game. The criminals next to him are even reviling him. Now we know from other gospels that in all of this, Jesus is caring for others. In Luke, in, sorry, in John 19, 25 through 27, Jesus cares for his mother by asking one of the disciples to take her as his own mother. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, 
while hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then, one of the criminals actually turns in repentance. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He is fully aware, fully conscious, and he's caring, even while enduring the extreme pain of the cross. But in verse 33, the story shifts dramatically. Did you notice the detail that opens this scene? And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's about 12 noon. Luke 23, 45 says the sun's light failed. This is a cosmic event at noon. And, and there's a, a large part of me that believes silence for three hours. Darkness. You can't see anything. The beauty of scripture is we don't have to wonder what's taking place in this moment on the cross. Mark actually uses a word in Greek that is often used to refer to spiritual darkness and physical darkness. So what is happening here? Well, to answer this, let's listen to the Old Testament prophets describe what is called the day of the Lord, which is the day of God's judgment and his wrath. Listen to the prophet Amos in Amos 8, 9. He says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now listen to the prophet Zephaniah in Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15. He writes, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You see, the darkness in these three hours symbolizes the wrath and judgment of God. The truth is we cannot fathom the depths of suffering that Christ was experiencing in these three hours. All Mark can do is draw our attention to the fact that it was darkness for three hours. In these three hours, the righteous, perfect Son of God is experiencing the full weight of sin and the divine fury of God against sin. That's what's taking place right here on the cross. John MacArthur sums this up well. He says, the darkness is not the absence of God. It is the presence of God. It is the infinite wrath moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite son who could absorb all the tortures of eternities of hell and do it in three hours. Behold the glory of Christ as he takes the punishment you and I deserve for our sin. Behold the love of God. 
as he satisfies his wrath by executing it on his son. Jesus does this alone. Church, listen to the cry of Christ from the cross in verse 34. It's there for you. After three hours of enduring the wrath of God against sin, the Son of God cries out the most gut-wrenching cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, for eternity, the triune God has existed in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect love. But in this moment, there is no comfort from the Father on the cross because just wrath has to be fully satisfied. We're going to sing a song here in the end of this that says, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. We keep moving. Verses 35 through 36, we see the bystanders still don't believe. Do you see the disbelief? They don't say he's calling Yahweh, but Elijah. They don't believe the son has access to the father and they mock him. And they give him sour wine to hold him there longer. And what takes place in verses 37 and 38 is so glorious. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Church, this should cause your hearts to sing for joy. For this is the moment of your redemption. You see, the curtain tearing in two from top to bottom, it could only be done by God. This is the curtain that was in the temple that separated God from man. And it's torn in two. There's no longer separation. We can come to God. We can pray to God. We can be with God forever. This last cry right here is the moment of power. It's the moment of glory. Because this is where God's wrath was satisfied And man was made right with him through the blood of Jesus. Payments for sins was made. Victory was secured and the way of God was opened. Look as glory shines through utter darkness. And this brings us to the final act, act four. Glory shines through an unlikely confession. Act four centers around the amazing confession of a centurion in verse 39. This confession is the peak of Mark's narrative on the cross. You see, here Mark shows that Jesus Christ truly was the Son of God by contrasting the mockery of disbelief with this confession. This confession is precise. It's firm. Mark begins the words of the centurion with a word that is familiar if you are reading through the gospel of Mark. He says, truly. 
Jesus has used this phrase 12 times throughout the Gospel of Mark to point to something that is true. Here, the centurion uses it to point to the truth, to point to the one who is true. Do you notice the contrast of true belief to disbelief? Three times since verse 16, various people have mocked Jesus by sarcastically calling him the king of the Jews. Here, the centurion confesses not that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews, but the son of God. This is such a fascinating confession. You see, in the ancient times, the title son of God was actually used by kings. And they said this of themselves because they wanted to equate their authority and their power with the gods. They wanted to make sure no one questioned their authority, so they claimed to be the son of God. This is actually the first time in Mark's gospel that any person has said this. The father said it in chapter 1. The demons have said it, but never a person until now. And now it's a centurion who makes this confession. He would have been the leader leading the men who led Christ to his crucifixion. He would have been the leader of a hundred men. He was a loyal soldier to Caesar. He knew the authority of Caesar. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. It's a treasonous confession. But this is the truth that Mark wants us to see. Because the centurion stands facing the crucified king And his eyes are open to see the glory of Christ as the Son of God. So when we're studying scripture like this, we have to ask, what caused this confession? Mark doesn't tell us. He gives us some clues. In verse 39, he says, When the centurion saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And in verse 37, we see Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. That's the clue. That's the clue. What causes this confession by the centurion? The way Jesus breathed his last words upon the cross opens the centurion's eyes to see the glory of the Son of God. So then we ask, what was that then? All Mark says is it was a loud cry. This is why I love the word of God. Mark is normally a vivid and descriptive writer. He included the place where Simon was from. He included the sons of Simon. But he doesn't include details here. And it causes us to have to go and dig through the scriptures to see what Jesus said. Can I just say, church, Study scripture. There is so much treasure inside the words of these pages. Dig deep until you find it. So we can see what causes this confession by looking at the three other gospels. And let me show you those. In Matthew 27, 51, Matthew records 
that after this cry, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Luke 23, 46 shows a part of the cry of Jesus. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Then in John 19.30, we see that Jesus also said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What a moment for the centurion this must have been. There's darkness for three hours. The earth shakes and rocks split. Then you hear the loud cries of Jesus, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, and it is finished. And then he breathes his last. You see, Jesus Christ died in total control. And the centurion realizes this. Did you see the control of the king? He still has enough strength to let out a loud cry. This is amazing. More than we may know because we don't know the details of crucifixion. You see, when someone was crucified, what often ultimately took their life was suffocation. Their feet and their wrists were nailed to the cross and they were suspended in the air. So gravity is constantly pulling their weight down to the ground. And so they would lift up to get a breath and go back down. After a while, there's not enough strength left to do that. And so they would die because they could not breathe. Do you see the power of Christ though? He didn't die that way. He committed his spirit. He gave up his life. Total control. The entire time. This is why we can sing with confidence, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We know that it was finished on cross because Christ laid down his life for us. The Son of God satisfied the wrath of God on the cross owed to his creation because of its sin. This centurion had undoubtedly seen many crucifixions before, but he's never seen anyone exercise this kind of control. So he confesses, truly, this was the Son of God. And now we Behold the glory of Christ through this unlikely confession. And it shows us what we need to confess and see as well. So the confession in Act 4 has been made. In Mark 15, 42 through 6, 8, Mark shows that Jesus was buried, remained there for three days, and then his quick ending shows that Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to women, and they left afraid and astonished. You see, Mark validates the work on the cross by showing the resurrection, but he leaves our eyes at the cross. And I think he leaves us there because he wants us to answer, 
one of the most vital questions you can ever answer in life. Will you see Jesus on the cross in your place and believe? There's really only two responses to the cross. We can either behold the man upon the cross and we can dismiss his glory and his power. We can continue the mockery of Jesus Christ by denying who he was and what he did. The second is to behold the glory of the Son of God and to believe that he did that for you. The cross is either shameful or it's glorious. There's no in between. And you cannot have God without the cross. It is what makes us right with God. We need to see it as something glorious. John Calvin puts it this way. As our minds grovel in the world, we look upon his kingdom not only as contemptible, but even as loaded with shame and disgrace. But as soon as our minds rise by faith to heaven, not only will the spiritual majesty of Christ be presented to us so as to obliterate all the dishonor of the cross, but the spittings, scourgings, blows, and other indignities will lead us to the contemplation of his glory. So let me urge you, behold the glory of Christ at the cross. Believe that he did that for you and live. See the love of God on display for you. And do this constantly, church. It's not just for the first moment of salvation. It's everything. It gives life at all walks of life. At the cross, our life was secured. At the cross, we find hope. At the cross, we are promised a marvelous inheritance. At the cross, our sins are paid for and our wounds are healed. At the cross, a way to God has been made. At the cross, we can sing with a sincere heart. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Will you please stand with me and let me pray this word over us. And then we'll head into our time of communion together. Father, my request for all of us in this room is simple. Show us the glory of Christ. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Give us grace to trust in you, to think rightly, to delight, to find joy forever. In Jesus' name, amen.